Listener Production. As civilians continue to bear the brunt of fighting in Ukraine, those telling their stories are also coming under attack. British journalists! Journalists! That was British Sky News correspondent Stuart Ramsey and his team being repeatedly shot at by Russian forces just outside Kiev. They all survived, but since the conflict began a month ago, five journalists that we know of have been killed. That includes Oskana Bolina, who died just overnight. She was working for an independent Russian outlet. This is in addition to an Irish cameraman, Pierre Zakazuski, and an American documentary maker, Brent Renault. Now, one of the elements that makes this conflict uniquely challenging to cover is that there are no Western forces on the ground to embed with. Particularly in Iraq, you know, you could go to the US military and say, hey, we want to see what you guys are doing. Can we come to your air base? Can you show us the command centre? And they did that for us. So given you can't do that in this conflict, how are journalists bringing us the latest info while staying safe? We're going to interview reporter Hugh Whitfield from 7 News on the ground in Kiev. But what we're seeing here is almost like a throwback to the sort of wars that we studied in modern history. The Ukrainians are preparing for trench warfare because they obviously want to hold these countries. Trench warfare, that's a term I haven't heard in a while. That is our briefing for today's episode. First, though, as always, here are the headlines. It is Friday the 25th of March. You're with Jeff Brown and Tom Tilly. NATO has decided to beef up its military assistance to Ukraine. Allies are also equipping uh, Ukraine with significant military supplies, including anti-tank and air defence systems and drones, which are proving highly effective. That was the Secretary-General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, there. Um, He was speaking after an emergency summit in Brussels that was attended by the US President Joe Biden. So NATO are still not deploying troops on the ground, but they will add 40,000 troops in nearby countries, including Hungary and Slovakia. And this comes after another intense warning from the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. I am sure you already understand that Russia does not intend to stop in Ukraine. She wants to go further against the eastern members of NATO, the Baltic states, Poland, that's for sure. There's also another uh, very key meeting happening in Brussels at the moment, which is a meeting of the Group of Seven, the G7, and Vladimir Zelensky has urged them to cut off all ties with Russian banks and to cut Russia off from the global positioning system, which is the GPS, and also to impose an embargo on all trade with Russia. Mm, Which would include oil, which would be a very big deal and create a lot of difficulties for a lot of those countries. That does imply that there's still further they could go with sanctions. And when you see what Russia's already done in terms of just absolutely decimating cities like Mariupol, um, I saw this incredible drone footage of how, how badly that city's been destroyed last night and how beautiful it was just a few weeks ago. You wonder why they haven't pulled out all stops in terms of sanctions at this stage. And some big news for refugees who've been languishing in detention. So... Bit of a backtrack. Nine years ago, the New Zealand solution was first floated. New Zealand will settle 150 refugees each year. So that was Gillard at the time. After that, the whole thing was backtracked on by subsequent leaders, Rudd, Morrison, etc. And while that was happening, refugees spent up to nine years languishing in detention. Then finally yesterday, the Home Affairs Minister, Karen Andrews, announced the deal was happening again. 
Australia and New Zealand have jointly agreed today that New Zealand will resettle up to 150 refugees per year for three years. Yeah, so that is very good news for people who arrive by boat here to Australia who are part of that 150. They'll finally be able to start a new life there in New Zealand. It did come out yesterday that Jackie Lambie, who is the independent Tasmanian senator, of course, had had a hand in this. Yeah, so it came out that in 2019 she struck a deal with the Prime Minister where she um, agreed to vote to repeal the Medivac legislation, which was about bringing people from Nara Manus to Australia for medical treatment. In exchange for that, according to Lambie, the PM promised what we found out about yesterday, but she wasn't allowed to talk about it. She tweeted, I was told that talking about the deal would kill the deal. If I talked, they would suffer and I couldn't do it to them. It does put a lot of um, things into context in retrospect. I remember when Lambie agreed to repeal the Medivac legislation, she was moved by it. She was sort of crying and it felt like it was a hard decision for her. And I guess at the time she'd done it in exchange for this deal, but we just didn't know about it. Mm. So we all, it, all, it just seemed like, Jackie Lambie, what are you doing? So there was a gut-wrenching trade-off going on for her. Well, it seems like that was happening in the background, yeah. And she says there's a document to prove it in Parliament House that's kept safely in, in Scott Morrison's safe. And he hasn't come out and denied it. It's been revealed that China is considering building a military presence on the land of one of our closest neighbours in the Pacific. Yeah, so there has been this leaked report um, showing that China has been in discussions with our neighbouring country, the Solomon Islands, about having a potential military presence there. That is our neighbourhood and we are very concerned of any activity that is taking place in the Pacific Islands. That's the Home Affairs Minister, Karen Andrews, again. So this um, official document um, that's been leaked says Honiara would allow Beijing to deploy forces to protect the safety of Chinese personnel and major projects there. The document's believed to have been recently drawn up but not formally signed by both governments. The major worry for Australia is that if this agreement does go ahead, it'll give China a base for its navy, which is less than 2,000 kilometres off Australia's coast. Now, that base would be the first time that Australia has had an adversary within striking distance of our coastline since World War II. Yeah, when you look at the map, you've got Papua New Guinea that sits just above Queensland. And then as you move around to the right, you get the Solomons, New Caledonia, then eventually you come around to New Zealand. There's kind of a circle of islands. So it's one of our closest neighbours. And the Prime Minister has distanced himself from Hillsong founder Brian Houston. Um, he welcomed the news of Houston's resignation yesterday. I think it was entirely appropriate and I was, must admit um, we were very disappointed and, and shocked to hear the news. Yeah, so it's a bit of a tricky one for Scott Morrison because he has a long association with Brian Houston. He was a member of Hillsong about 15 years ago and actually singled out Houston as a source of inspiration and thanked him in his maiden speech to Parliament when he was first elected. I made a commitment to my faith in an early age and have been greatly assisted by the pastoral work of many dedicated church leaders, in particular the Reverend Ray Green and pastors Brian Houston and Lee Coleman. Yeah, that was 2007. He maintained that friendship um, well over a decade. In 2019, it was revealed that he tried to get Brian Houston on an exclusive guest list at the White House, which he sort of initially denied or was very coy mm. about commenting on, but then 
you know, it became increasingly difficult to deny and he came out and said, no, that was the case. Seems like the White House staff were pretty savvy to um, block that request, given what's happened. Houston didn't end up going to um, the White House event. Um, Yesterday, though, he resigned uh, from his position as head pastor at Hillsong, and this was after an internal investigation, found that he'd behaved inappropriately towards two women. The other thing that Scott Morrison's in slightly hot water for, and I know he probably doesn't want to talk too much about this in the lead up to an election, but he said that he hadn't been to Hillsong in 15 years Mm. yesterday when, of course, he attended a massive Hillsong event just in 2019 in front of 21,000 people where he was the guest of honour. Yeah, but what he was saying was he, he hasn't been a member of that church for 15 years. Yeah, tricky. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a Scott Morrisism, if there's such a thing. Yeah. Well, yesterday we were waiting with bated breath to find out what Ash Barty was going to do next mm. after she announced her shock retirement from tennis at just the tender age of 25 and the world number one, mind you. Uh, today, I don't think we're any closer to finding that out <laughs> at all. It's been a hell of a journey. Uh, I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, and I certainly have no regrets. Yeah, so she didn't outline what she was doing next. Um, she just talked about why she'd retired a little bit more, talking about how she'd lost motivation and that Wimbledon and then the Australian Open were big moments for her and that the Australian Open was actually more for everyone else, more so than her. It was never about the successes or it was about fulfilling Ash's dreams and she basically did that. That was her coach, Craig Tizer there, obviously full support of Ash's decision. The tributes just keep rolling in. She was a very, very well-liked player. Naomi Osaka addressed Barty's retirement, saying this. For me, um, in particular, I just really loved uh, watching her. Yeah, I saw that comment from Osaka and I thought, wow, I I reckon that she wishes she did the same thing. She's won four Grand Slams and then had a really rough time having to pull out of tournaments, struggling with her own mental health. She's probably thinking, hmm, that might have been a better way to wrap things up. I'm still here. (laughs) Well, someone else is still here, Serena Williams. Um, She tweeted, I can't lie, I was sad to read your decision, but also happy for your new chapter. Always your fan, close up and far. That's lovely. Yeah, and to put this all in context, so Barty is is wonderful. She's won three Grand Slams. Do I sense a butt coming on here? My goodness. Doesn't need a butt. Serena Williams has won 23 Grand Slams. Wow. Wow, that is pretty extraordinary. And such a good big up to get from someone like Serena Williams. Okay, in just a moment, taking you to Kiev in Ukraine. How are journalists managing to cover the war in Ukraine, given how unpredictable and dangerous it is. Yeah, all the major Australian TV networks and newspapers have correspondents moving in and out of the country, and many of them are well known to Australian audiences, like Chris Reason from Channel 7, Amelia Adams from Nine News, Sarah Ferguson and Tony Jones from the ABC, I'm Kate Garrity, the veteran Herald photographer, and now Hugh Whitfield is there for Seven News. Yeah, Hugh's speaking to us from the outskirts of Kiev, which is the capital. It's right in the sort of central northern part of the country, which has been under attack from Russian forces coming across the Belarusian border. Hugh, you've just made it to Kiev uh, in the last 24 hours. Whereabouts are you in the city? What can you see around you? So we're just on the outskirts of Kiev, which is where we're going to be staying. It's taken us two days to get here from Lviv, and there was a curfew in Kiev earlier in the week, which meant we couldn't go the whole way in. 
And it kind of seemed like today when we got here, it took us another seven hours to get here to cover about 300 kilometres. So there's actually a remarkable amount of traffic on the road. And clearly after that curfew lifted, goods and supplies and truckloads of fuel and food and, and things heading forward to Kiev now that that curfew has been lifted, really dominating the roads. And obviously there's people going in the opposite direction as well. We saw a lot of cars with the Ukrainian word for children on the fronts of the uh, windscreens. And that's obviously families who a month into this conflict have made the decision to leave the capital or other part of Ukraine. So how dangerous was it making that journey? There is an element of danger. We got about probably 80 kilometres from Kiev and we decided to um, put our um, vests on, our bulletproof vests. So that's obviously equipment that you see reporters, particularly in Kiev and other parts where there, there is conflict going on, wearing on camera. Uh, There's a helmet as well that you decide to put on when the danger increases even further. We also have gas masks with us because there is obviously speculation, particularly from US intelligence in the last 48 hours, that Russia and Vladimir Putin may use chemical weapons in this conflict. That is obviously something we don't want to be anywhere near. Mm. But if we are, then we need to be prepared. And and so, you know, we, we have the right equipment and we want to be making good decisions, but we also want to be able to tell the world, and particularly Australians, obviously, about what's going on here. In fact, just at the accommodation facility where we're staying, um, we've just had dinner as a team, and um, there's some local Ukrainian blokes who are having dinner just across the restaurant. We're the only two groups in there, and this guy came up and said, I just want to thank you so much for telling the world about what is happening to my country. And so overwhelmingly what I've found in the week or so that I've been in Ukraine so far is that people do want this story told. Ukrainians want the world to see what Russia is doing to them. And then on the flip side, obviously, there's an increasing awareness, I think, particularly from the Ukrainian soldiers at the checkpoints that we pass through. They want to make sure that we are accredited. They want to make sure that our names are with the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian government because they obviously fear that Russians are going to get in a car marked press and use that as a way to get into communities where there is no Russian military presence at the moment and to cause carnage potentially. So Mm. we're aware of that. They are aware of that. You've got to tick the right boxes. You've got to make sure that you're playing by the rules. Hugh, you've reported on other conflicts before you were in Ukraine um, back in 2014 when there was an uprising against the then leader. You've also reported in Syria and Iraq. Is there something that is uniquely challenging about this one in your view? I've reported from Gaza and that's obviously Israel versus Gaza, which isn't a fair fight because the Palestinians, they don't have an air force. You know, they're just firing rockets over the border to Israel. When I was here in 2014 in the Donbass, the downing of flight MH17, that was Russian separatists who, again, didn't have an air force. They kind of took over Donetsk and Luhansk on the ground. And for the last, let's say, six or seven years, particularly with the rise of Islamic State in places like Iraq and Syria, much of the reporting that I've done, this is this strange enemy that we've been fighting, particularly with Islamic State, where they don't have an air force. They don't have a conventional military. They really hate journalists and the press. So your life is in serious danger if you come across any Islamic State terrorists in Syria or Iraq. But what we're seeing here is almost like a throwback 
to the sort of wars that I, because I'm in my mid-30s, the sort of wars that we studied in modern history, uh, the Second World War. You know, we're driving through paddocks in Ukraine today that have dozers in them and backhoes to dig trenches. Wow. Now, we would have thought that trench warfare was kind of done with after 1945, but the Ukrainians are preparing for trench warfare because they obviously want to hold these towns and these cities and their country. And so they're preparing for a long fight. We know there's a front line in this war. You can see it drawn on a map and the front line moves around. It moved today, moved further away from Kiev on the western side and a little bit closer on the eastern side. It's so different to an insurgency in Iraq from locals who hate the US presence or what we saw with Islamic State across northern Iraq in 2016. This is a real throwback and it feels like it's going to drag on. I imagine one of the other key differences and challenges is that you don't have any Western forces to embed with. No, so if you, I mean, the Russians definitely aren't going to let us embed. I mean, we can see that they have their own Russian state television, you know, Russia today that's now banned in places like the UK and other parts of Europe, pro-Kremlin, Kremlin-owned media. The Ukrainian military is pretty open in some places to allowing media to go with them. There's an element of danger, of course, of that. When I was in Syria uh, or Iraq, particularly in Iraq, you know, you could go to the US military and say, hey, we want to see what you guys are doing. Can we come to your Mm. airbase? Can Mm. you show us the command center? And they did that for us in Iraq. They took us to Al-Qaeda airbase in Iraq to show us what the coalition troops were doing. But you're right, on this occasion, it's just the Ukrainians, you kind of buddying up with them to be able to tell the story because the Russians aren't going to have a bar. Do you feel more exposed that way, not being able to embed with a Western force like Americans or potentially even Australians in a conflict like Iraq? Well, look, the reality is they're not here, are they? No one wants the conflict to spread into NATO territory where American or British or Polish troops would come into play. Nowhere in Ukraine is totally safe right now. I spent two days in Lviv on the weekend and the air raid sirens were going off there as well. We're obviously having to take some risks to be able to tell the story. And and I think, as I say, you can move around relatively easily in the areas of the country that Ukraine continues to hold. There are plenty of stories that can be told without going right up to that line of contact where the two sets of forces are facing off with each other. And Hugh, how are you deciding what to cover and where to go each day, given, as you say, the front is moving? You did mention earlier, you talked about US intelligence. Are you getting much of that? Are you banding together with other Western journalists to share information or make logistical plans? How are you making those decisions? All of that. Channel 7 is the only Australian media at all that's had a presence here in Ukraine pretty much since the start of the year, since the middle of January. We had Sarah Greenalch who was on the ground here for five weeks. Mm. Jeff Parry and Chris Reason have been here since then. I'm here now. We've got a team of people, locals and non-Ukrainians, who we are working with, who work with us to A, keep us safe and B, make sure that we've got the best information that we can have access to. And obviously, you know, those relationships exist between the same reporters and producers and camera operators that we often see here on the ground in Ukraine, we've seen in other conflict Mm. zones, or I know them from London, where I'm based, where a lot of them live as well. You know, in some ways, 
when I was reporting in Sydney on the crime round in parts of, of New South Wales, you know, we'd all run into each other at stories and that's kind of what happens here, but on a, on a really different and kind of bizarre scale. Wow. Hey, Hugh, we mentioned um, in the intro to this story that there have been at least six journalists that we know of who've been killed, sadly, including two foreigners. What sort of measures do you take to stay as safe as possible and how do you deal with the strain of that mentally? Well, look, to be honest, I think that Fox News crew that was hit and Pierre, the cameraman, we used to run into Pierre all the time in London. We saw him in Iraq a couple of years ago as well. Ben, the journalist who was injured, I know him from London. I'd run into him at Downing Street. We ran into him in Iraq a couple of years ago as well. I know these guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to take a little check, right? You have to just in your mind, it's a little reality check to be like, yes, this is dangerous and I've got to know what I'm doing. And then you obviously have to manage risk and you need to make sure that you're making good decisions. And that's what I talk about with my team and that's around me and my cameraman, Jimmy, who I've worked with for years now. It's about making good decisions. You don't want to make decisions that you regret even if it means that you end up, you know, in a difficult situation for five minutes. You want to be making good decisions all the time and, and hopefully that culminates in, in a good result. That was Hugh Whitfield, a Seven News reporter, talking to us from just outside of Kiev. Interesting to hear him say that the Ukrainians were thanking them for being there, bringing the horrors that they're experiencing to the rest of the world. And I think in this conflict in particular, the media is doing an important job because there's a real need to counter the misinformation coming from Russia's very sophisticated propaganda machine. Mm. And also in situations like this, a massive shout out to fixers who are locals that are Mm. working with foreign journalists that are doing so much of the work um, and trying to get the story and going into these dangerous places before the foreign journalists do. And also to cameramen and women who have to get the shot. The journalists can, I'm not saying that they do this, but they can hide behind a wall if they need to. They can get out of harm's way if they need to. Camera people, they got to be there to get that shot. And I think that sometimes they tend to go a little bit unrecognised in conflicts like this. So shout out to them. All right, that's it for today's episode. Jamila Rizvi will be with you. Um, jumping into your feed with the weekend briefing. Who have you got on this week? This weekend, I am chatting to Dave Hughes, who is, of course, a massive household name as a comedian turned radio and TV star. He has been on just about everything there is. But I wanted to go behind the froth and the bubble of celebrity and ask about some deeper stuff. So we talk about what made him give up booze at age 21, where his veganism comes from and an interview in 2011 with the Dalai Lama. This is Dave Hughes, as you maybe haven't heard him before. Wow, that sounds interesting. He is is a complex and very funny character, Dave Hughes. I'm looking forward to that. Jamila, thank you for listening to The Briefing. Remember, today, Friday, is the day of The Briefing Instagram quiz. So if you're not following us already on Instagram, jump on and follow us there. And if you haven't subscribed on Spotify or Apple Podcasts where you're listening to us, please do that. Uh, Rate and review. Love you for that. We'll catch you Monday. Listener.